if you go to a cheese store or even just a grocery store, grab a block of like Tillamook cheddar um, and flip it over and look at the nutrition label. And it'll say zero grams of sugar. Lactose is a sugar, so you know that that cheese is lactose free. So anything over like three months is pretty much guaranteed to have no lactose. Welcome to the Swell Suite, everybody. So today we are talking with Diana Breyer, and she's the owner of Valley Cheese and Wine in Las Vegas. This conversation is all about cheese, and she's going to break down some myths and some things that we believe about cheese that are simply not true. So buckle up. You're going to enjoy this conversation. Cheers. Welcome to the Swirl Suite, everybody. I have a very special guest today. Diana, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Of course. Now, I read your bio. I know it's amazing, but please introduce yourselves to everybody. Sure. So I'm Diana Breyer. I uh, started off in the wine world as a cheese professional. So I'm an American Cheese Society certified cheese sensory evaluator and certified cheese professional, uh, former and hopefully future artisan cheesemaker again, um, and then also an affinor and now a WSET level two. Okay, so two questions right off the back. What is an affinor? Am I saying that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, what, what does that mean? Okay, so an affinor is somebody who ages the cheese. So they adjust time, temperature, humidity, airflow, surface pH, surface moisture of a cheese to sort of cultivate flora and fauna and propagate specific microflora to achieve the desired result on a cheese. Mm, How about that? It's so scientific. (laughs) It is. And it's a lot like, it's like raising babies, like (sighs) little cheese babies. The affinor is the parent, you know, so you have the cheesemaker who's sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, gives the cheese life and births it into the world. And then the affinor, the affinage is the process of aging the cheese. And that person is responsible for overseeing the life cycle in general while the cheese is aging. So sometimes they're the same person, the cheesemaker and the affinor. Sometimes they're different people. Hmm. Um, I happen to be a cheesemaker, an affinor, and a cheesemonger. So there's a lot of... Okay. And the cheesemonger, that's just a person who does what? That's the person who slings the cheese. Slings the cheese. That's the person who's responsible for telling the story. Okay. Got you. Okay. Before I get into your, um, your cheese training and how you even got there, how, how did you, how did this happen? Cause you weren't always into cheese. What was the pivot? Uh, the pivot was actually open heart surgery. I had a really weird medical emergency happen and like just one thing after another led me to have emergency open heart surgery. And I was doing a bunch of different jobs at the time. I had been to college for seven years total um, and didn't get a degree because I kept changing my major between left brain and right brain and nothing ever. I started in musical theater and finished in financial analytics. So like everywhere, I just had zero direction except a little bit of everything. Um, So I found myself doing financial analytics and teaching dance on the side to sort of you know, have both sides of my brain working. And um, yeah, ended up having to have emergency open heart surgery. Long story short, I did, I briefly flatlined. And when I woke up from that experience, I was just like, I really need to find the thing. And I applied to Whole Foods because I had heard it was a great place to work. My mother is Italian. So the Italian side of my family uh, is very like okay. food is a love language. Mm-hmm. Um, so they put, they asked me, you know, what do you think about cheese? And I said, oh, I love cheese. Who doesn't love cheese, right? So they put me in a cheese 101 class and it was that exact moment. I remember it like it was yesterday where I felt like every cylinder of my brain firing, everything was just, it had found me actually. And so I spent the next eight years reading cheese books every day and really just like cultivating and like nurturing that love, that love and that newfound passion. Wow. That's amazing. I feel like it's like that for a lot of us who are in this industry. It's that one moment that, you know, it takes you like, I'm not going to be the same after this one moment. So yeah. after, after you realize that you love cheese and you want to really understand it. So what came next? What is the training like for your profession? So the thing is, is that there's no real like formal accredited training that cheesemongers and cheesemakers go through. It really is 
kind of, it's still very much is like an old world style where you're grandfathered in or you're just sort of lucky to have the opportunity or the doors open. Um, before the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods, their cheese program was really a, a highlight and a focus of, of their entire sort of, you know, model. Um, and I was lucky enough to work with some certified cheese professionals in Whole Foods that sort of taught me the basics of cheese mongering. But honestly, I would go home and I would read the stories of the cheeses myself. If there was a cheese that I liked or a cheese that I didn't like, I would read what made it so unique and special that, that it was something that I could just understand it better, you know? Um, and I began to sort of tell those stories and look for that background while I was eating the cheese. Um, and in addition, like I mentioned earlier, I was reading cheese books constantly, just like gobbling them whole. Um, it just, it was the, it became the perfect marriage of art and science and like human relationship to earth and animals. Um, and so it just, I just had a huge fueled passion to just grab every iota of knowledge I could. So in, in addition to sort of self, self-educating and taking in what expertise I could find from those around me, um, I also naturally wanted to start knowing the science side of things. And there was a, a ski resort up in Park City, Utah called Deer Valley Resort where the Olympics are held. Um, and they had a little cheese program. So I called them and I said, do you need help during the ski season? I'd love to know what it's like to make the cheese, but I only know the mongering side. And the assistant whom I spoke with said, I can't believe you would call me today. Uh, I just put in my notice, why don't you come in and be the assistant cheese maker? So I learned how to make all the different types of cheese at Deer Valley and within just a couple of weeks, I was making all of the breeze. Um, and I just felt like this is where I belong. So. I kind of, it was a lot of like self-teaching, but a lot of like opportunistic things with cheese. Every time I've decided, um, a lot of manifestation, like cheese manifestation, if you will. Every time I decided it's time to take the next step in my cheese journey, it opened its door to me um, with open arms. So, Wow. So does making cheese, is it lengthy? Like, does it take like a while to make? Cause I would be really nervous. Like, cause I feel like either cheesers is good or bad. Like, I don't know. Is there in between? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's definitely an in between. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody has their gateway drug when it comes to cheese, you know, their gateway cheese that gets yeah. them sort of interested. Um, but it depends on the cheese. You know, a brie can make about four hours, can take about four hours to make four to six hours, depending on your make procedure. But then you need to pay attention to that cheese every day, sometimes twice a day for the next three weeks while it's aging. Whereas a cheddar can take about eight hours to make in a very hot room and it's a very arduous make procedure. It's very physical. Um, but some cheddars, you can just sort of throw them in a cave and check on them every now and then and see how they're doing. So. While the make procedure is one part of it, the, the creation of the cheese is a lengthy process based on what it is and which step in that process is lengthy. For me, I would consider the aging or the affinage of a brie to be more arduous than making it, of course, but I would consider the aging of a cheddar to be far less arduous than the make procedure. That's so cool. That's really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think I did read that you have two certifications. Correct. And what are those? So I'm a certified cheese sensory evaluator. As of right now, there is uh, there are 45 of us in the country. Um, and they are there is a new crop that's taking an exam this week. So good luck to everybody if anybody can hear this. Um, <laughs> Um, so the Certified Cheese Sensory Evaluator exam is a lot like sitting for the Master Sommelier exam. It is, okay. you walk into the room and you have a table that is like just with your name tag on it and you sit down and there are 10 cups of milk in front of you and you have to sniff each cup and identify each, like each smell as one of 51 possible aromas that can be present in raw milk for cheese making. Uh, <laughs> I did not. Y'all should see my face. I did not expect that. <laughs> so that one was funny because um, you're just 
you know, to prepare for that exam, I was sniffing everything. I made every produce section my personal scratch and sniff book. It was just very, it was a very interesting process to watch Diana study. Um, I would let cream go bad in my fridge and just smell it every day and like make notes on it every day. Um, so yeah, so that was the aroma part of it, but then they give you 12 cheeses and uh, you have to evaluate each cheese based on appearance attributes and defects, flavor attributes and defects, aroma attributes and defects, texture attributes and defects, and then you also assign those a gradient. So like if we're assessing salt in say a blue meringue cheese, we would say is there too little salt? Is the salt in balance or is it too much salt? Is it over salted? Um, so like that was about, I think there were so many different permutations of cheeses, but we really had 12 cheeses and I think there were 40 or so evaluation characteristics on each cheese's sheet. So it was really, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, this sounds really intense. It, it does. Oh man. So does wine come into play at all um, during this exam? No, wine is not in play at this exam. Um, okay. The certified cheese professional exam is the same way. Okay. So it's sort of, it just focuses on cheese. Sometimes we talk about like pairings and whatnot and what's mm -hmm. more appropriate to go like, Oh, these cheeses are sort of like Loire Valley goat milk cheeses are easy to pair with a Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc. You know, gotcha. okay. what grows together goes together. So sometimes we learn like little iotas, like little sort of nuggets of wine information. But um, no, wine education is not part of the cheese exams. Gotcha. Understood. Okay. Hey, Glennis, how are you? Glennis, this is Diana. Hi, Diana. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> She is our cheese expert today. Oh, okay. I see you drinking a red wine. What you drinking? Yeah, what are y'all drinking? Um, I'm drinking a Graciano from Paxton in McLarenville. Very nice. Okay, so you probably know I'm drinking a salt. Well, I just opened this up because I just ran in from voting. Yeah. Did you get these three cannonball? Yes, yes. I drank my Sauvignon Blanc yesterday. I drank the red one over two days. So now I was hot. I've been running. I said, let me yeah. just grab this Sauvignon Blanc. This yeah, it's really nice. Which my thirst. Yeah. Um, but so hi. hi. Okay. My favorite <laughs> cheese. I always derail the agenda. I'm the, I'm the, <laughs> derail this train. I'm here for it. <laughs> okay. So my favorite cheese is Piave. Oh, yeah. Okay. That is my favorite paired with a Cabernet Sauvignon. And so I've never had this cheese before. What does it taste like? Or what like is it? It's firm? a hard cheese. Okay. It's a hard cheese. And it puts you in the mind of a Romano and mm. Parmesan consistency. Okay. But the Piave, oh, oh my gosh. I had a person <laughs> for brunch and I said, sweetheart. That's the rind of the cheese. There's no more cheese left. She was just <laughs> still trying to get to the cheese. <laughs> yeah, Piave is a mountain Italian cheese and it has like, it goes through a cook step. So it sort of has a little bit of a sweet undertone to it, but the flaky, the texture is going to remind you of a Parmigiano Reggiano, but mm. it has a lot of saltiness like a Pecorino Romano, but it still has those tyrosine crystal formations that everybody really enjoys in aged cheeses. It's very easy to pair. It's a very snackable, sort of like a table cheese. Really great yep. choice. Exactly. That's my favorite. I was introduced to that cheese at Duck Corn. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I'm glad they have a cheese program. I'm, I, I'm stoked about that. One of the, and during the tasting, they had it paired um, with um, the Cabernet, paired with the cheese and the, with the Piave and, the, and some chocolate. And I thought I died and got in heaven. I'm just like, okay, yes. cheese and chocolate, cheese and chocolate, underdone, underrated. That's all you need. So tell us about Valley Cheese and Wine. How did you come to own this spot and tell us all about it? So when I moved to Las Vegas, I moved here with the idea that cheese wasn't being done very correctly, as far as I could tell. Um, there was no really prominent cheese scene in Las Vegas. If we think about it, cheese has always been kind of, or Las Vegas has always been a food cost-based town. This used to be the place where you would come and you would get your $7.99 steak and eggs. You know, no right. chef is going to no use a $15 a pound, his cost cheese in his freaking omelet. 
you know, that's, that's not cost effective for chefs. So um, we really had to wait for a culinary revolution to sort of make its way to Las Vegas, where a lot of these chefs who were previously working with some of the big corporate engines um, decided to branch off and really do these farm to table movements or the sustainability and the traceability. We really needed those chefs to be sort of the champions of cheese for us and sort of open the pathway for us to, to make our name as far as you know, market saturation goes. Because there really wasn't a shop that was curated for the retail customer's palate. A lot of the places that offer cheese were mostly designed to offer cheese to chefs and then had a shop to just sort of offshoot what didn't move or maybe, um, maybe just needed a second facing of it somewhere. So Valley Cheese and Wine was the first shop in Las Vegas and it was actually um, founded in 2006 by the first owners, I'm the third. Um, and they had the idea that they wanted to bring a really curated artisan cheese program to the Las Vegas Valley. And they also wanted to have a wine professional on staff at all times as well. So in the second acquisition of the business, the second owner, she was, uh, she's a lovely French woman um, who just really loved her cheese and wine. But really, it was just her that was kind of running the shop. Um, and she had two small kids and things like that. So fast forward to 2019, I have moved to Las Vegas. Um, I started off with a great little company called MGP Food, where I was uh, helping to chat with chefs all over the valley about what cheeses to use as they were getting more interest um, and did a little bit of mongering on, as well for them. And then I really decided that, like, this is no offense to anyone I've ever worked with or for, but I am tired of men telling me what to do with my career. Um, I was tired of it. I knew that I had everything within me to be the boss. Um, and I moved, when I moved to Las Vegas, I moved right down the street from Valley Cheese and Wine. And they were actually the first person I called when I was looking for a job. Like, are you hiring? This is who I am. And they're like, no, 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 we're not hiring. Because they were selling the business at the time. So I, gosh, this is just such a long-winded story, but it's just so magical because it's a perfect example of how Cheese chose me back again. So I had left MGP Food because I was going to do something on my own. I was going to make cheese in Las Vegas, um, which hadn't been done before. And I had some investment opportunities. But once again, it was a bunch of men sitting in a room deciding what I should be doing. And I was like, that won't work for me. So I thought, OK, I'm going to leave Vegas. It's not ready yet. I'm not sure what to do. I went to Valley Cheese and Wine to get a bottle of wine and just like kind of cry about it because I really wanted to be in Vegas. But nothing seemed to be opening up. And the shop owner, who was a former client while I was doing consulting, said, you know, what's going on with you? You look, you look upset. And I said, I think I have to leave Las Vegas. I really want to do cheese here, but there's nothing that suits me anymore. And we were in pandemic by that time. Um, and she said, I can't believe you're in here today. I just decided to sell the shop today. And so I was like, I'll take it. Wow. And, um, and I brought back the original owner's vision of having a cheese pro on site all the time and a wine pro on site all the time. And now, as of right now, we're the most expertly staffed in cheese and wine in Las Vegas. So. I might have missed this. Now, where are you located in Las Vegas? I'm sorry. We're in Henderson. So we're in the McDonald Ranch area, so about 15 okay. minutes away from the Strip. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's always been like that for me. I decide I want to work somewhere or do something different. And I just put a couple of feelers out or even just put it out into the universe. And then someone's like, hello, would you like this? And it's always cheese. The rest of my life has not been like that, ladies. Just cheese. <laughs> like everything else, a little bit of a dumpster fire. But cheese, I got it. I got it. <laughs> so how do you feel about wine um, in regards to cheese? You know, I didn't love, uh, what I knew about wine was that I loved to drink it. Um, when I first started this foray into everything. And what ended up happening is that I realized that it was so far, it's like trying to vacuum a desert, learning everything about cheese and wine, right? There's just, it's just impossible. But as I started to really find these similarities and flavor profiles, um, and the, the fun thing about me is that as a cheese pro first, when I taste a wine, I don't look for fruit first. Um, and so that's something that makes it a little bit, my approach to tasting is a little bit different. And so I started realizing as I was tasting these wines and picking up on all these characteristics that also are shared with cheese, 
that the more that I learned about these wines, the more I fell in love with cheese. So then I started studying wine even more, and now I'm at WSET level two, um, and I'm gonna go for three next year. I'm just a little tired of exams right now. And <laughs> I mean, it's a lot, I'm not a good test taker. I'll have to tell you something when we're not recording. Absolutely, <laughs> we're here for it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I fell in love with, with wine as a direct result of owning the shop. I didn't have any intention to study wine when I bought Valley Cheese. Um, we had always intended for there to be a wine pro on staff and then a cheese pro on staff. But luckily for us, when we acquired the business, it was during the pandemic, there were a lot of out-of-work sommeliers. So they were happy to come to a little mom-and-pop shop and talk to people about wine. But then once Vegas opened back up, I can't compete as a small business with what those psalms are making on the strip. So it kind of became hard to find the right person that embodied the sort of culture that I wanted. We're very inclusive at Valley Cheese and Wine. We, we want to make sure that everything has a very low barrier of entry, that we're explaining things in a friendly way. Um, you know, I'm not coming in here and correcting your pronunciation on things. I don't care if you don't know what you like, we'll help you. Um, but it was really hard to find that after everybody went back to doing what they were normally doing before lockdown. So I just decided to become that person instead. That makes perfect sense. It really does. So um, you being Italian, do you have mostly Italian wines in the shop? Oh, no, girl, there's everything. <laughs> Actually, my weakest point is the Italian wines. I'm a more geeky, my palate leans towards the more geeky harder to find like Graciano like where do you find a single varietal Graciano mm. you know like it's hard to find but this one's from Australia so um so I like that sort of geekier winemaking style those because as a cheesemaker that's sort of the approach that I would take to my cheesemaking is you're paying homage to all of the great old world styles before you but you're never going to replicate those because you're not in that environment you're not in that terroir you don't have that same breed of cows and they're not eating the same type of grass. It's not going to be the same. So I'm not, that same thing goes with wine. You know, so I don't think that there should be a bunch of winemakers who are trying to do things. I like the idea of having things in like a Bordeaux style or a Burgundy style or things that remind you of the new world from the old world. But anybody who's saying that they're producing an old world XYZ that is living in a new world wine producing country is just, that's not my gig. <laughs> that was a nice way of putting that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure I, I feel like just by the looks on your faces that there are some like big opinions happening. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about um, how you're going to get a different taste in your cheese and the same with wine based on where it's ingredients are being formed or made or grow. And um, Italy just puts me in that mind because the tomatoes and the cheese in Italy tasted so different from what I was getting back here in the States. I was like, okay, this bruschetta is off the chart. And I know it's these tomatoes and I know it's this cheese because we can't get this in the States. And I mean, it was just, I was like, I got to have this every day. But my waistline wasn't agree with me but I was on vacation so I don't care yeah it doesn't matter no there's no calories in cheese when you're on vacation a little known fact exactly <laughs> love cheese <laughs> so I have a question do you see any cheese trends right now is Absolutely. that a thing oh okay yeah. oh yeah so cheese trends well first of all cheese trends in multiple different ways so we have to talk about the elephant in every room, which is social media. Um, and social media has been a blessing and a curse for the cheese world, because on one hand, during the pandemic, you had a lot of people who were sitting around with nothing to do and everybody built cheese boards and then called them charcuterie boards. And then everybody started building boards and calling them charcuterie boards and they didn't have charcuterie on them. So all the cheese professionals, like our head just collaboratively blew up, right? Because there's a, there's a misinformation there about what charcuterie actually is, um, which is just, the definition is just cured meat. So a charcuterie board actually should only have meat on it. Um, however, it did bring a lot of attention into cheese. So cheese shops like mine were having people coming in and saying, oh, I'm building boards in my kitchen for, you know, my 
aunt's graduation on Zoom or whatever, I don't know. Um, and they would start asking questions about cheese and it really sort of brought cheese to the forefront of people's minds because cheese and charcuterie boards as an art form took off on social media during the pandemic. So that had a positive influence on, you know, sort of traffic uh, as far as cheese purchasing was concerned, but maybe a negative impact on as far as, you know, misinformation going around. You know, there's a lot of jokes even right now. There's a commercial for some credit thing that says, oh, I see something cheesy for you. I hope you're not lactose intolerant. And those kinds of things make me crazy because most cheese doesn't have lactose. And so it's like, I just feel like everyone in the world should ask a cheese pro before they make a cheese joke or a cheese caption or whatever, but not everybody has access to one. So, you know, it's our job to just sort of, like I said, lower that barrier of entry and use it as an opportunity to educate folks on, on moving forward with cheese. Um, so that's one trend. The other trend is, of course, we experience seasonality just like wine does. And so cheesemakers have turned that into something that is very profitable for them. A great example is Rogue River Blue. I worked for Rogue Creamery for a couple of years. I was in charge of all their cheesemaking, the first female to like officially lead that team. Um, and the creamery was established in 1935. So that was a long time it took before they had a, a woman at the helm. And um, under, it was actually my team that made the batch that won best cheese in the world. Wow. Um, and that cheese is, a blue cheese and we only harvest the milk between the summer solstice and the fall equinox because that's when you know they're grazing on like lush fertile farmland and berries and there's all of that sort of vegetation and growth in the pasture um, and then the cheese is made and aged and released the following year at the fall equinox so there are seasonal cheeses that employ the use of whatever's going on with the milking cycle of the ruminant animals, or I, I just call them the girls, because cheese is a women's industry. Um, men took it over for a while, but it's always been like, where do you get your milk? Women, you know, who was making the original cheese while the men were out to pasture tending on the herds? Women. So I just call them the girls. So if I ever say the girls, I mean the milking animals, the girls that are out to pasture <laughs> or in the barn. <laughs> when I eat a cheese, I can tell where they are, right? So if yeah. I'm eating a cheese, they can be like, oh, these girls were in the milking barn because they're undertones of grains and like toasty, toasted nuts and hay. Mm -hmm. So I can tell that this was winter milk and the girls weren't out to pasture. Wow. But then when I get some sort of bright herbaceous undertones and some floral tones, I can tell that the girls have been let out of it. You said you made reference to uh, doing social media, how bad press and ideas get misconstrued. But I totally agree with you, but can we, can you talk a little more about, you said lack that cheese is not the sole source, uh, something with the lactose intolerance, because I have a lot of friends, I know a lot of people who say, I can't eat cheese because I'm lactose intolerant. And this was before the pandemic. And mm -hmm. so that's something, could you expound upon that a little bit for our audience? Because yes. I think that would help. A lot of Absolutely. So let's start off with cheese making. As a cheese maker, the first thing we do is we acidify the milk. It comes in around 6.6 .6 pH. Um, and we the first thing we do is we acidify the milk, thereby converting most of the lactose into lactic acid. Um, so that's the first step in the cheese make procedure. Uh, after that, you have affinage, which we explained earlier to Sarita, uh, you weren't here yet, Gladys, was the process of aging the cheese. So um, affinage is the aging of cheese. So um, the remainder of lactose is actually eaten up or dissolved by enzymatic activity during the affinage or aging process. So unless you're dealing with like a freshly made cheese, like a mozzarella, a burrata, you know, like a mascarpone, those might have trace amounts of lactose left, but there's an easy way to check me on this. There is a really easy way as a consumer to, you know, prove me right. Um, which basically is, <laughs> if you go to a cheese store or even just a grocery store, grab a block of like Tillamook cheddar um, and flip it over and look at the nutrition label. And it'll say zero grams of sugar. Lactose is a sugar, so you know that that cheese is lactose free. So anything over like three months is pretty much guaranteed to have no lactose left. I mean, there's an arbitrary number. Cheese professionals throw out, you know, anything over six months or nine months, but really, I mean, 
like data has shown that it's about two weeks really that most lactose is out of most cheeses. Um, and that, that actually explains why cheese is such a keto friendly food. You know, there's no sugar in cheese. And so that's lactose is a sugar. So I actually, as a cheese professional, I have become lactose intolerant because I never deal with lactose. When I was making cheese at Rogue Creamery, I would be, you know, up to my shoulders and 10,000 pounds of cow milk. And the last thing I wanted to do was have a glass of milk when I got home. So my body stopped producing that enzyme, that lactase enzyme that breaks down the lactose. So that's a really, it's a really interesting reason as to why um, some like, you know, some countries in Asia that don't have a huge dairy program, a lot of, you know, people from that area are face lactose intolerance because they just, once they're off of breast milk, they don't have a lot of exposure to unripened or unfermented dairy products. And so that lactase enzyme that we have in our stomachs as babies just stops being produced because it's not necessary anymore. So now I am mildly lactose intolerant because I've been in cheese for so long. First of all, my mind is blown here. Thank <laughs> you. That, that we didn't know this. How, how, I don't know how this it happened. Makes, it makes sense though. It from does. a scientific standpoint, because like you said, lactose is the sugar. There's no sugar. Just for God knows. Wow. <laughs> wow. So then wow. you also have the other group of people who say, well, I still get sick when I eat cheese. And they assume that they're lactose intolerant because of mm. it. Okay. And that's something completely different. That has to do with the molecular structure of the protein molecule casein in the milk. So cow's milk, most breeds of cow have what we call an A1 protein, which mm -hmm. is kind of like if we imagine just like a molecule that was a little bit more spiky, um, mm. it would be a little bit difficult to ingest and swallow, right? Um, but if you have a molecule that's a little bit more like smooth and shimmery, it would be it would go down a little smoother. That's what we call the A2 protein molecule. And that's why some people who get sick with cow cheeses don't get sick with goat and sheep because mm -hmm. goat and sheep milk tends to have predominantly A2. This is breed specific, of course, but um, as a general rule, if somebody is still experiencing digestive sensitivities to cow's milk, it's likely and very rarely lactose. It's usually the A1 protein. Wow. Yeah, my, fa my favorite cheese is actually goat cheese. It's Chev. Yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite. I absolutely <laughs> love goat cheese. Good. Yeah. yeah, it's so good for you. Good for your tummy. Well, this is interesting because this is similar to the misnomer in wine as well. When people consistently say, oh, I'm allergic to sulfite. Slow down. I tell them, slow down. Are you sure? Do you drink orange juice? Do you drink other juices? Are you... Yeah. That, that has more sulfites than wine. So it probably is not the sulfites in wine that you're allergic to. So yeah. get these misnomers, like you said, or, you know, because people reading stuff on social media and taking the word of one or two people versus doing the research for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, and, and you know, it's funny because, gosh, I, I really ought to know better at my age, but sometimes <laughs> when I see these things on social media, I'm like, you guys, there's no lactose in cheese. And there's like people that just argue with me all the time. And I'm like, you know, I, I just never, never mind. It's not even worth your effort. <laughs> it's, not, it's not. You just got to scroll past because a couple yes. of times I catch myself. <laughs> and, and let's be clear. I cannot wait to post the snippet of this show. It's going to be this part. So everybody can come in our comments. Like, look, exactly. just follow her and educate herself. Exactly. So let's, can we go back to the charcuterie board? Because I think that's yeah. another uh, myth that we need to dispel this afternoon while we're talking to you. Because the average person would think that a charcuterie board is a mixture of pickled, like pickles, olives, meat, cheese, and on what I would consider, when I'm looking at a charcuterie board, that's the funny part, because I was like, what kind of cheese is on here? I never go to the meat first. I always went to the cheese first. So that's not the case. It's charcuterie, it's the meat. Then all the other stuff is accoutrements that go along with it. And that So the board is the meat board. Okay, wow. Can you talk so about that? We say, we say cheese and charcuterie board at VCW, Valley okay. Cheese, the abbreviation for Valley Cheese and Wine. Um, okay. We say cheese and charcuterie board. 
Um, and charcuterie actually, yeah, just means the cured meat. So you can have what we call accompaniments. We don't use accoutrement because accoutrement I, is typically an ingredient, whereas an accompaniment is something that's served alongside. God, um, I'm like, repeat that again. I'm not <laughs> I should not be. Yeah, so first people, first people are super pissed at us right now with all this appropriation of charcuterie <laughs> and the, the accoutrement that we're using here. But, um, but charcuterie, yeah, really is only referring to the meat. So we do true charcuterie boards, and they do include just meat and accompaniments. Um, so I like to put, like, meats and mustards and cornichons and pickled items and olives and stuff like that on them. Um, but, yeah, if there's cheese included, just give cheese a little credit. You know, just bump in the word cheese and charcuterie board, and it even sounds a little bit fancier. So That makes sense. So wow. I will be using the Again. correct terminology. Again, my mind is blown. I'm, I'm crazy. <laughs> so I have a question for you. Does um, the type of cheese that someone may like, does that say something about their personality? Good question. Uh, most of the time, yes. So like I said, and I, and I keep like sort of hitting on this and it's kind of like a dead horse that I'm just beating at this point, but I want there to be a low barrier to entry. So we really, really, really try at BCW if somebody comes in. Luckily for me, I have a beautiful deli manager who is a certified cheese professional as well. So even when I'm not there, she's more than capable of, you know, taking on a new customer and saying, what do you typically enjoy eating? And then we sort of take you, it's like putting training wheels on a bicycle. We're, we're wanting you to go like full tilt BMX X Games kind of nonsense but let's give you a tricycle first um, <laughs> and let me see where your palate is. And then we'll sort of move you up in the rankings. So we do that because we have a lot of people, we have a lot of people that just come in because they've heard of us and they've never been in or they've lived in the area forever and they're just now noticing, um, but they're not that familiar with cheese. And then we have the people that come in and they're total Francophiles and they only want to eat, you know, the washed rind, really gym locker, you know, pudgy, savory guys that I've got, and they want to find the weirdest stuff that I have in my case. Um, and so while it says something about a person's sort of personality, it more tells me about their, their palate and how I can play with them. So we really try to be playful too, because I'm like, okay, if you like this, you're probably going to like this. And then if you like this, now try this with this on top of it. And then we just go, we just do like building block style. So it does tell me how playful I can get with people or how or what level of weird, like mild to wild, do we take this experience? So. Okay, certified cheese professional Swami. So what does our two cheeses say about Sarita and I? So Sarita gave you one that she loves. I gave you one of my favorites, plus feta. So those are my two, really, feta and piave. So, and Sarita's I can't pronounce, so she had to tell you again. So what does that say? <laughs> okay. So honestly, Sarita, like, I feel like you're, do you typically lean towards like bright, high acidity sort of wines? Um, sure. I guess you could say that. I drink uh, everything, but yes, especially during, it's, especially during this season, it's sparkling all day. Okay. Yeah. So Chev tells me like if somebody, first of all, somebody likes Chev, it tells me that they really, really appreciate texture. Absolutely. Um, insane. The, I am insane about texture. So that's true. Um, that they really appreciate like acid, um, like a good acid balance in a wine, I think is necessary anyway, but like mm -hmm. I digress. Um, and also, I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know you very well. And so this is like kind of a weird <laughs> I don't question, know what you're about like, to say. So that's where I'm laughing. <laughs> it's, it, it's fun because it's more authentic. You're just yeah. coming off the cuff based on the cheese that we yeah. told you. So this is yeah. I feel like Sarita is somebody who would appreciate the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because Chev is one of the ones, actually, let's talk about Chev for just a second. Let me, mm -hmm. let me derail the train for a second because I have some shit <laughs> to say about some Chev, okay? So Chev, as most people call it, is goat cheese, but anything can be made with goat's milk. So I try and steer away from using the word goat cheese because any... You know, you can make a Gouda with goat's milk. You can make a blue with goat's milk. So Chev specifically is unripened fresh goat's milk cheese. And typically in France, when it first started, it would take 24 hours to make. 
um, it was a long, like low and slow, like crock pot style because uh, goat's milk is made up of short and medium chain fatty acids. So when you acidify short and medium chain fatty acids too quickly, you break them, releasing an enzyme called lipase, which is responsible for that sort of putrid barnyardy flavor that some chefs can have. Mostly, you'll find that the ones that are in those vacuum sealed logs that are produced domestically and are sitting in a pool of their own way are the biggest culprits of showing that barnyardy characteristic. And they're usually kind of chalky mm-hmm. versus very like pillowy and, and light and fluffy. So chevs should be very pillowy and nice like citrus undertones and very like soft and fluffy um, with no barnyardy characteristics. If anything, you should detect a slight earthiness or a slight tartness, but nothing that's like a barn floor. So Chev has a bad rap because in order to increase production domestically, we shortened that make procedure and broke all those fatty acids and then vacuum sealed that cheese so it couldn't breathe. And then all the waste seeped out in it and it sat in its own juices. And I don't know about you, but if I were suffocating and sitting in my own juices, I wouldn't taste that great either. Yes. I feel like you appreciate the process. And then Gwyneth, I feel like you, Piave is kind of like a party cheese. It's like a table cheese. Like, I feel like you're kind of like the life of the party. You probably get along with a lot of different people. You probably have a variety of like, I would even say a variety of different wines that you enjoy, a variety of different snacks. And I also feel like you're probably pretty adventurous. Like, you know what your baseline is, but you probably are willing to like, put something on top of it that's different. You know, you're probably willing to take that extra step that's like just a little bit off the beaten path. With travel, yes, but with food, no. That's why Serena's cracking up because I am the one person with food. I don't, I'm really straightforward with food. I, I, yeah, I'm not going to, I don't venture into like trying different meats because at wine things, I always like, yeah, I want this or or I'll, I'll order a, um, vegetarian plate because I don't venture with meats at all. I just you don't, you're a vegetarian completely. No, nope. Didn't say that. I just okay. don't. I'm not adventurous with meat, so I like my beef very well done. I like I can eat any seafood, but when it comes okay. to land mammals, <laughs> no. Are you adventurous with like your wine pairings though? Like you told me that you do the piave and the chocolate and the cab. And most people, yeah. I know that that was a duck horn, but that wasn't, that's not something that most people right. put together. No, you're, you're, you're exactly correct. Now, as long as it's not meat and okra, I'll try any vegetable. But the, the, and, I, and when it comes to meat, I'm not, don't give me, I, oh, Sarita know, and most of our listeners know, I do not eat any of my childhood cartoon characters. No Bambi. <laughs> No Donald Duck, no Bugs Bunny, no Little Lamb Chop, none of them. Thank God they oh. didn't make a cartoon out of shrimp because I'd be totally screwed up. <laughs> what about a cartoon cow? Are there any cartoon cows? I guess not. <laughs> yes, there is a cow. There's a couple of cows in the cartoon, but they had their own show. She's about to become a full vegetarian. Just my fault entirely, huh? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm adventurous with my travel and things like that. So there's something else too, but I love feta too. So that's like really one of my, you know. Life of the party though? Or are you like life of the party? Yeah, too. It's funny too. I would like to talk about this. That's funny. I'm the life of the party till I get full. Then I go sit down and sit back and start observing. Well, you have a very high stamina, honey, because I don't think I've seen that. I've never <laughs> seen you get full. <laughs> Because when we travel, when we had to travel together, you outdrink me, and also you stay up a lot later than I do. I don't have it. Okay, so that is very true. But when I when I say I get full, is if I get full of just miscellaneous people just running their mouth. So uh, I'll, okay, you, you see uh, me come oh, me back too. away from them, and I'll okay. sit down. How you doing? Let's have something else to drink. It's so really oh. be at the table. Like, I'm not trying to drink no more with you, but. <laughs> Like, so we gonna drink when we get back to our room? We gonna drink when we get back to our hotel? <laughs> Looking at me like, girl, I'm trying to keep my eyes open so I can't stay up. 
Hey, I have never shared this before, but I have never been to Vegas. Because Vegas doesn't seem like my favorite city to visit is New Orleans. I can wear my ripped jeans, walk around and drink, eat fantastic food and just I don't know, just be regular. I feel like if I'm in Vegas, I have to have some sort of showmanship. I can see where that comes. Well, I think that that's that's a very I hear that. I really do. Um, I also think that as a local, my mindset has changed completely because I enjoy this town on a very different level than tourists do. I don't have to put on a show or I don't have to have any sort of, you know, I can like when you said, oh, I like I can wear my ripped jeans and I can drink on the street. And it was like, sounds like Tuesdays. So we do that here, you know, <laughs> but we, um, the locals are a really, especially the food and beverage industry. Oh my gosh. It is it has completely captured my heart here because everybody is just one Kevin Bacon away from everybody else that like six degrees of Kevin Bacon's game. We're all like one or two Kevin Bacon's at the most away from each other. And so it's a very close-knit community. It's very driven by that mindset of community focus. Um, and really, it's kind of in this weird dichotomy, especially highlighted by the pandemic, of small guys versus little guys, um, where you know you have the huge corporations that are you know the casino-owning properties and things like that. And then you have the little guys who are the small restaurant owners who are those impassioned chefs and those driven entrepreneurs we're wanting to create something special and unique. And so there is this whole other, just as strong of that like tourist culture that we've created in Vegas. There's also now a really strong up and coming like locals counterculture. Um, that is a really, a really beautiful thing to experience because this is, Vegas is human fondue. You take one person from this country and one person from this country and you just emulsify them together with a little bit of alcohol and no one hates it. So it is just a great, it's a great place to get a little bit of everything um, while still being very, very much able to support that narrative of driving forward the community driven and entrepreneurial spirit. So Sarita, I might've missed this, um, Diana, I probably missed this from earlier. Where are you from originally? I was born and raised in Texas. In Texas. Oh, so the heat is not necessarily a big issue for you. It's a dry heat. Oh, that's bullshit. It's true. <laughs> that bullshit, that heat in July and August in Vegas when it hits your skin is like stepping into an autoclave. That, I No, I love it. I love it. Oh my God, that's, that's another one of those misnomers. Oh, it's giant, it's not as bad. You get out there at 110, 120 degrees in Vegas in August. I said, let me tell you what I said. I got off that plane for a conference and we walked out that airport. I said, oh, Jesus. I said, Lord, if hell is anything like this, I'm going to start stop sinning today. I can't do it. <laughs> it was so hot. I don't know how you do it. Okay. So how does the cheese keep from melting? Yeah, I know y'all got a lot of dry eggs. So. Well, we, <laughs> um, we actually, I pick up most of the cheese from the airport. So we fly it in and it's cold packed and then it's kept in refrigeration. And then it only has that transport in my car in the boxes that have cold packs and it goes straight into refrigeration. Okay. So we really are, we're, cheese, is, cheese is very sensitive if you, okay, cheese is just like a person because it is a direct representation of how it's been treated throughout its entire life cycle. Mm. Okay. So if it is subject to time and temperature abuse, it's gonna show a little bit of like, well, I haven't been treated very well, so I'm not going to taste that great, you know? <laughs> um, but it really, I don't, we don't have a problem with it in Vegas as much. I do a lot less direct shipping from places that it has to be more than a couple days in transit. Um, so sometimes I front load my inventory getting ready for those hotter months. Um, so I won't direct ship anything from France or I won't bring in, you know, some of my artisan chocolates overseas um, until we're through those, those crazy months. But, you know, you don't have to scrape 110 off your windshield. And I spent 15 years in Utah. So I, I don't, you know, I, became, I moved here and I became a lizard. Like, find me a rock and give me 120 degrees and, like, lots of variations of sunscreen, and I will be fine. And a hydro flask, because you got to keep, keep your wine at the right temperature. You yeah. water. 
you're gonna automatically combust sitting on a rock like a lizard in Vegas in 120 I love you, but I don't want to read about you on the news. Teens professionals fried on a rock. Just dead. Just dead. Full of cheese. Oh my God. I'm sorry, Serena. Okay. This is so much fun. (laughs) No, this is so fun. Um, uh, Last serious question before we go through these, like all things cheese. Um, What is your favorite wine and cheese pairing? What day is it? Because it just depends. Today. Today. Because I know what it's like when people ask, what is our favorite wine? And we never have like a clear answer. So go for it. So I would say that my favorite overall like god i feel so bad for all the other cheeses that i'm leaving out here but okay so my favorite is Ash viognier paired with capriole tea rose so tea rose you're gonna love this serita tea rose uh Penarash viognier lynn Penarash, beautiful winemaker out of oregon viognier uh, i love oregon wines i spent some time in oregon making cheese so oregon wines are really special and close to my heart Female winemakers are especially important to me um, and important to Valley Cheese and Wine as well. And Penner Ash Viognier has these beautiful, like, white florals. You know, Viognier's just show that gorgeous floral note. Um, and it's got a nice bright acidity, nice minerality. It's just a beautiful flavor profile. Tea Rose is a chef that is from Capriole in Indiana and also a female cheesemaker. She hand ladles the curd, or it's called Moulay à la Louche in cheesemaking. So hand ladling that curd that gives you that really delicate pillowy texture. Um, and then she coats the chev in fennel pollen, herbs de Provence, and dried flowers. Mm. So together, that combination just really is exuberant of like bright florals. It's like, it's like a spring meadow after a slight rain. You know, it's just a gorgeous pairing that really brings out like the best in each, but also combined so perfectly on the palate, we consider it a master pairing at DCW. Do you guys ship? No. No? Okay, I figured. All right. <laughs> we can't ship wine, actually. We're not allowed to, but um, but we can, I mean, I might could figure something out for you, like on the down low. Okay. You know I, mean? <laughs> I don't want to twist your arm. <laughs> but yeah, I'll send you some for sure. Yay. And today I'm having the Graciano from Paxton with um, an Australian mixed milk sheep and goat cheese that's been marinated in olive oil, peppercorn, and thyme. Because you have a lot of those like lovely peppery notes that come through in a Graciano while still getting a little bit of like a savory undertone, but you have like bright, vibrant, exuberant red fruit coming through as well. And a little bit of like lavender florals, like purple flower that comes in. So really everything's sort of the sheep and goat milk is just a perfect combination because it's fresh. So I don't know if you can see the texture on this, but it's just like, it's like a spoonable spreadable oh, texture. Okay. I save that oil for salad dressing and to like dip oh. bread in later. Yeah. Um, Man, now I need some cheese for real. Now you need to come to Vegas. Just over yeah, the summer. Sure. Okay. <laughs> this has been really fun. I've enjoyed it a yeah. lot. So our closeout questions are all about cheese. Okay. Okay. Um, Blue, blue. No, just all right. I, I think, I mean, all of us can answer. I don't really know some of these, um, but we're going to give it a go. Okay. Best cheese for nachos. Ooh, what kind of, okay. So I love pork nachos with red witch. And what is red witch? Red witch is an Alpine style from Switzerland that okay. is uh, raw cow's milk. And it's just got a little bit of age on it. So it's really like supple and long in texture, but it grates mm. beautifully. And it's just a stunning melter. So I actually love Red Witch for for nachos. Anything oh. but cheese whiz. Oh, see, I am. That's cheese an old whiz. faithful for me. If you oh, take you me, really wait, wait though. If you, if you not, it's not like I have cheese whiz at home. But if I go to the movies, I want my nachos smothered in the oh stuff that comes out of machine. Diana, it's one of those, it's one of those things it. I need. It's one of those Put things your phone I need. Mean. Don't listen yeah. to my phone. Oh, Jesus, Paris. this is a- <laughs> <laughs> Don't judge me. See the Still. biggest foodie, natural It's true. I ordered nachos somewhere. The nachos came out. I tasted the nachos and I was like, did this cheese come in a plastic bag? And they were like, yes. And like, I can taste the plastic bag. Oh. So. <laughs> Now, um, well, you might have just ruined this for me, so we'll Good. see if I can Good. even enjoy it the next Good. time I have Ruin it. Ruin is a strong word, Serena. <laughs> Good. Good. That's I good. might have fixed it. Fix is probably the better. Don't, 
Don't tell nobody else you like that. <laughs> you know, we're all allowed to have guilty pleasures, though. Like, <laughs> yeah, but we can get find some better ones than the cheeses. Where does the best cheddar come from? Like, where do you cheddar. like your cheddar from? So I really, really, really like English and Irish style cheddars, and that's just because. Okay. Che- I mean, cheddar came from England in the beginning. In the beginning, right? But um. There are some really interesting things going on with cheddar right now because it's not a protected class, um, so it, it can be made anywhere. Um, but cloth-bound cheddars are always my favorite. And actually, there is a cloth-bound cheddar from Wisconsin called Bluemont Bandage Cheddar that is one of the best bandage cheddars I've ever had. Um, and it's what I call an endangered cheesies because the cheesemaker is only making... Yeah, they, they do endanger because uh, cheese making, like I said, sometimes people are so grandfathered into the industry. If their ancestors or their kids or grandkids don't want to pick up on the cheese making, sometimes that cheese will just go extinct rather than share the recipe outside of the family. Huh. So this cheese, uh, Bluemont Bandage Cheddar, um, the cheesemaker Willie just makes enough cheese to support his skiing habit. And he um, ages it in a cellar that's on on his property and... Once he stops skiing, he's not going to make the cheese anymore. I'm such a lover of expression of terroir that I have had some outstanding cheddars that come from Vermont, outstanding cheddars from Wisconsin, outstanding cheddars from Oregon, and of course, outstanding cheddars from England and Ireland. Like as far as a blanket rule, you can always sort of count on England and Ireland to be like the OGs of cheddar. Um, But when it comes to domestic, I really just anything with an expression of terroir. So it's hard to pick favorites it's like choosing a favorite cat what gives it the yellow color start by saying that cheese is the color of milk right unless it has been treated with an inclusion so i don't so essentially any cheddar that has like a yellow tinge to it that generally means that the cow has been out to pasture cows don't absorb beta carotene into their diet and so that comes out in the form of like a yellowish tinge in their milk um but if you have an orange cheddar that's typically the use of annatto. Annatto is an odorless, um, odorless, tasteless extract from the annatto seed. So it is a, basically it's what gives Mimolette its color, Pave du Nord and orange cheddars. So essentially, annatto is just a colorant that we use to delineate different cheeses in cheese making. Um, or sometimes it's paid homage as like tradition. So like Mimolette was formed um, during a trade war between um, the Netherlands and France when they wanted to make their own version of Edam cheese versus import it. And so they made this little ball of cheese, but they colored it orange to distinguish it from Edam. And then they cave ripened it and it became something else entirely. But like, there's a lot of delineation used just with the use of annatto. Um, and sometimes it's just an aesthetic, you know, it's also people's comfort. We, I mean, domestically speaking, I grew up in America. So I grew up with orange cheese being kind of commonplace. And really cheese only has like in its fundamental core, cheese only has four ingredients, which is milk, salt, cultures, and rennet. Um, and so the fifth ingredient in a color, in the cheese with colorant should be annatto. Um, but if there's an inclusion, and an inclusion is anytime we add something to the cheese, um, like truffle or lavender, sometimes those inclusions can seep a little bit of color out into the cheese. No, I get it. And honestly, I think that around the country, it's just really good advice to find a cheesemonger. You know, this is a really good opportunity to help people to understand to shop small and support local. Your local boutique wine store or your local cheese store is going to have a lot more passion. Right. And so when you come to a shop like mine, you you get the story, you get you not only get the what, but you get the why, and you get the how, and you really understand the intention and the motivation behind everything that we do. Yes, I love it. That is a great closure. So tell everybody where they can follow you and where they can follow the shop. So we are uh, Valley Cheese and Wine in Henderson, Nevada. So we're just like 15 minutes away from the strip. Um, we do wine tastings every week from the bar on Wednesdays and Saturdays. We teach classes every Thursday on varying subjects. So um, sometimes it'll be wine. And actually, my dad teaches the wine because he became a sommelier at age 70 when he bought the shop with me and I co-owned with my parents. Um, we have a wine club that is for people who are local. We also have a VI cheese program. As long as you want to have a piece of cheese or a sip of wine, you belong here. 
Thanks for joining the Swirl Suite. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave us five stars, and leave us a comment. We love ratings. Also, be sure to follow all of us on social media. Myself at Vine Me Up, Glennis at Vino Noir, Girl Meets Glass is Tanisha, Vino 301 is Leslie, and you can follow the Swirl Suite podcast account at Swirl Suite. The Swirl Suite is now a part of the Alive Podcast Network. This episode has been edited and produced by Vine Me Up Media. <laughs>